We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome, everybody. This is Coach Bo, 8020 Baseball. Great to have you guys here, coaches, parents, players. Great to have you here. Episode 43. And in this episode, we're going to talk you, Darvish, Fernando Tatis, systems, how to effectively start any coaching pointer, any coaching suggestion, any coaching message. And then we'll finish the episode with a bang. We're going to be getting into step four out of eight, step four out of the eight steps to designing elite drills. So we're going to continue that series that we've been doing. We've covered the first three steps in the previous episodes, and now we're going to get to step four when it comes to designing, building, I wouldn't say perfect drills, but as perfect as you can get them. I don't think perfect is necessarily attainable, but these are elite optimal drills, designing as close to a perfect drill as possible, building perfect drills. So we're going to get into step four at the end here. All right, let's get into it. First off, a couple shout outs. I'm getting feedback from some of you listeners, and it's awesome. It fires me up. I see the statistics going up. I see more and more listeners and that fires me up. And it does take a lot of time to put this all together and to do it consistently. And this is episode 43 and I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. We're putting out one episode a week on Tuesdays. And with that said, I've been getting some fantastic feedback from coaches. Coach Cosimo been doing a wonderful job with his players over there. He's in the panhandle of Florida. And then we got Coach Chase who reached out the other day. And I appreciate Coach Chase reaching out on Twitter saying what's up and uh, appreciating the podcast and the insight. So it is motivational for my end to hear this stuff. I know this stuff works and I wouldn't be sharing it with you if I wasn't committed to giving you great information that I believe absolutely will help in 34 years of baseball and 15 so on years of coaching. There's a lot of things that just work in baseball and there's so much wisdom out there. I've told you this many times before. I'm not the originator of all of this information. I do think there are some definitely I've put out there some things that are organic that I've never heard other coaches talk about, but it's not about reinventing the game just to reinvent it. It's about taking all the best of the old school experiences and wisdom and tying it in with the contemporary methods and technology and things now. And if we need to, or if we don't need to add new stuff or whatnot, if it was great as it was, but it's understanding what is the best for the game, best for the players, best for team cultures, best for scoring runs, best for preventing runs, and so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, it's just what works best. It doesn't matter when it came or who brought it. I'm trying to bring you the best. So with that said, I do appreciate all of you listening and Speaking of those great coaches, I've just been blessed over the years. Coach Tim Murray, who was a SoCal or Orange County Coach of the Year back in 2016. I coached with Coach Murray, learned so much from Coach Murray, who was the head coach at Woodbridge High School in Irvine. And Coach Murray was just phenomenal with relating to the players, and he just had such a big heart for the players. Coach Mike Curran is a Hall of Fame coach. Coach Curran was my baseball coach in high school. I coached, that's who I started coaching full-time with. I had coached a couple years before I worked with him at Esperanza High School in uh, Anaheim, California. Coach Curran is a Hall of Fame coach. Coach, he's spoken at the ABCA and talk about just a master planner, a detailed coach, and somebody who built some systems. And we'll get into that a little bit later with systems. Coach Ryan Brucker, just a phenomenal coach, just really cares about his players, but also is willing to try things that are not just conventional, but things that he truly believes in. And just learned to had a great time with Coach Ryan Brucker's head coach at Woodbridge High in Irvine right now. Those players are super lucky to have him. Now, real quick, before I name off a few more coaches, some of you might be wondering, hey, Coach Bo, why are you naming off these coaches? Well, you know what? I thought about it. I said, I got to 
share back some of this love. And over the year, I've had some great coaches and I've worked with great coaches. And I just want to share a little bit of that back and recognize some of these coaches like Dave Snow. Coach Snow is my coach at, at Long Beach State. He's a Hall of Fame coach. And, you know, I learned from him that you don't need to be talking the entire practice as a coach to get your players better. Coach Mike Weathers, phenomenal coach who was at Long Beach State. He's since retired. Coach Troy Buckley, another Long Beach State coach who's now pitching coach at University of Nevada, Reno. Just really wise baseball coaches. Ken Revisa, Dr. Revisa, got a lot of time with him. And man, that's just been a game changer for life. Coach Jeff Patterson, who coached me in high school. He was my pitching coach in high school. Has now worked his way up as a scout with the New York Yankees. In fact, he drafted Garrett Cole out of high school. The Yankees drafted him, but he was a big part of that along with some other scouts. And uh, he saw it well before a lot of others. Although Garrett Cole was a stud in high school, but he saw the value, picked him first round. They obviously didn't sign. He went to UCLA. But Coach Jeff Patterson, just a real baseball mind. And then uh, Pat Murphy, a coach that I coached with just briefly, but have gotten to know over the years. And tell you what, Coach Murphy, phenomenal person. And he's a guy who cares about players deeply and it's about the players and he's positive. So love all those coaches. I'm definitely even out coaches that I've had and I don't want to go on too long because I know the listeners here want to get into some of this stuff. And speaking of getting into the next thing, let's talk about you, Darvish. I do owe an apology, a little bit of an apology, at least to you. You as come about and had a great year this year in 2020. In fact, this is the first year in his career, or if not the first, it's like the first year and out of the last seven years that his fastball is actually a positive pitch when it comes to Fangraph's pitch values. Fangraph's breaks down every single pitch, every type of pitch. Well, I mean, pretty much anything. And that goes for any of these statistical sites and things that that break down these stats. And Fangraph's puts a, a value on each pitcher's pitch. And you Darvish's fastball, I believe in 2019, ranked like 350th. You can go back. There's a podcast episode that I did on this. I call it the you Darvish effect. And it was an article in on MLB.com and it talked about you Darvish throwing 10 different pitches. He doesn't throw 10 different pitches, but the technology doesn't decipher very well or the older technology and even some of this current technology doesn't decipher as well between pitch types. It's getting better and they're definitely doing a better job of identifying what pitch it is. But nonetheless, you Darvish, I said, he's trying to throw 10 pitches and maybe one of them is above average, a slider at the time, and the rest are average or below average and his fastball was way below average. And if your fastball is ranked 340th or whatever it was, it was in the mid threes out of all the pitchers. There's not that many pitchers in the major leagues. It's not like there's 5,000 pitchers, a million pitchers. So if you rank 340, you're definitely towards the bottom of the pitchers list when it comes to quality fastballs. And well, in this case, it was fastballs. And I thought you cannot have ultimate success. And his ERA was like mid threes. So it was this year, it's in the ones and he's dominating. But I do think he's gotten better with his mechanics. And I said, well, you know, I was telling my point was to youth pitchers. They see a guy and they read an article. Oh, he throws 10 pitches and that's what makes him good. You Darvish is big, strong, genetically gifted, has very good mechanics, good posture through his mechanics. He's super strong. He's in a grown athletic adult male in the upper one percentile of genetics in terms of strength and, and body structure and body frame. And so he throws 10 pitches and that does not make him a major leaguer. What made him a major leaguer is the quality of his stuff overall. But I was making the assertion that he would have been a better pitcher had he started dropping off six of these extra pitches and just really honed in. Or let's say he really throws about six or seven pitches. But I thought if he just really tightened up on three or four of them, especially that fastball command, glove side, arm side, and elevated, if he could really get that fastball command dialed in much better than it has been. In fact, I was at game seven of the World Series in 2017. I was sitting there and I watched the ball sailing out of the yard. I watched that a great view of the ball sailing out of the yard on George Springer's home run. In fact, he also ripped a double down the line in game seven of that World Series. And those were both on fastball 
fastballs and they were poorly placed fastballs. And so my assertion was you Darvish would be a better pitcher if he just cut out all these extra pitches and where youth pitchers should be very careful and cautious when you see this and you see these pitchers that allegedly or bragging or maybe there's an article that's highlighting this use of a massive amount of pitches. I've been out in front with this. I've said it. I've been very clear. Youth pitchers, high school pitchers, heck, even the great pro pitchers of all time don't throw an excess amount of pitches. They locate their fastball, glove side, arm side. They don't pump fastballs down the middle. They elevate their fastballs from time to time on purpose. So they have fastball control, fastball command. They throw an off-speed pitch, typically a changeup. An off-speed pitch is typically not, is a little different than a breaking ball. I'm not going to get into terminology, but so an off-speed, a changeup or a split finger has typically been mainstay, a staple in most great pitchers of all time, most pitchers' arsenals and their repertoire. And then a good breaking ball that they can throw for strikes that's got some tight spin, some good depth, and it tunnels well. So it's not about just float a breaking ball up there. It's about having good depth, throwing it with some tight spin. And the depth is key in the spin and then being able to throw it for strikes. So those three right there is more than enough. And in essence, that actually gives you five pitches right there because the fastballs can act as three different pitches. With the plate being 17 inches wide, you go black to black on the glove side, arm side with your fastball. Those are essentially two different pitches when you think about where they are, location, perceived velocity, and so on and so forth. And then you elevate that fastball and then you play your breaking ball with good tight depth, throwing it for strikes. Bottom of the zone would be better, but every hitter's a little different. Mike Trout would rather you throw it a little lower. You're probably a little better on a high breaking ball with him. But again, as you're practicing these things, you want to play the percentages. And then a changeup, I think, is the most underrated, underused pitch. I, I see a lot of this now. A lot of video pitching Twitter is putting out a lot of video on changeups. In my opinion, still underused across the board. And I've told you I've broken down exactly why we've gotten into this. You can email me. I'll send you the video link on this whole breakdown of why youth pitchers struggle with changeups. There's absolute solid reasons why youth pitchers, things out of their control that they, why they struggle or don't, I should say, don't have as much success. And then as they get older, their hands get bigger, the mound distance gets further and things like that. All of a sudden the changeup becomes more effective, but they've given up on it or they didn't practice it much because the breaking ball was so effective and, you know, when they were 11 years old and whatnot. So you turned it around a little bit. You're throwing a lot of pitches, but you're working on it and you're getting better. The ERA this year is stellar. I like you. And, you know, I think it's good to see that, but young pitchers, be careful. You don't need a plethora of pitches. What you need is good command, good control, good mechanics, repeatability, and a competitive mindset every single pitch, competitive and focused. All right, so Yu's turning it around right now, but his fastball is a lot better. It's still not elite fastball when you actually look at the statistics, but it's definitely now above average. And now imagine that he's commanding his fastball and now he's just dominating. And that's great to see you dominating. Another thing I noticed recently that I thought was super interesting, Fernando Tatis. I'm not going to talk about what a study is. By the way, I listened to him get mic'd up the other day. They mic'd him up. Man, that kid is fun to listen to. I'll tell you what, those announcers though, they need to have a little better wherewithal on when they're talking to these players during, I mean, they were talking about random topics that had nothing to do with the situation. You know, Fernando's out there and he's playing the shift. He's like isolated in the shortstop area on a shift. He's the third baseman has slid over to Machado had slid over to the second base side of the bag. And he's over there. He's got a runner at first. He's got a hitter up there that's aggressive. And they're asking him about the team culture and this and that and Manny Machado's like, let's time it a little bit better. Eric Carlos, who definitely I was a fan of Eric Carlos over all the years as a Dodger fan. But man, it was like, hey, I love listening to these guys get mic'd up, but we got to have a little better wherewithal with announcers can't be asking them these long, these open-ended questions in the middle of a pitch in a tight situation in a game that counts. So anyways, Fernando Tatis, you know, obviously a stud, super athletic. What a frame he has on his body. And that guy's just going to grow into it. And he's already hitting balls. That one ball he hit in San Diego over the building on top of that brick building. So I'm familiar with 
at that and I've been down to that stadium and I just thought that was almost something that nobody could do. I thought, well, you could hit the building. Hitting the building was pretty cool. Just hitting that brick building on the left field line. But he put it on top of that building and I was like, wow. And this kid hasn't even really filled out super. I mean, he's he's definitely strong, but man, he's only going to continue to get stronger if he eats healthy and, and gets in the weight room and does some proper strength and conditioning. But here's one thing that really stood out. This is something that most people probably didn't see. And it's something that tells me a lot. There's a 3-1 count with the bases loaded, in my opinion, is the best time to assess whether a hitter falls or where a hitter falls on the team player, quote unquote, team player spectrum. A 3-1 approach, a 3-1 approach. So watch any hitter with the bases loaded in a 3-1 count. I know this doesn't happen that often. You may even go a whole game and not see it or multiple games and not see this. But anytime you get to a 3-1 count, you're watching the game. Or you can go back and look at statistics on this. And that would be good if you have your major league team and you're running some data on this. But I'm telling you a 3-1 approach. Now they have the swing outside of the zone, swing at pitches inside of the zone, the O percent and you know, all that stuff, S percent, Z percentage. You don't need to do that as a youth coach. What you need to do is just when these situations come up, the 3-1 count, even a 3-2 count, but a 3-1 count. This is different than a 3-2 count, different than a 3-0 count. A 3-1 count with the bases loaded. This is the ideal time to assess whether that hitter is a team player or not. Now, again, you want your sample size to be a little bit bigger. So you're going to look at over the course of a season or a 3-1 count with runners at second and third or with runners in scoring position. Do they chase the pitch? Do they chase a bad pitch? Or do they stay disciplined on a pitch that's out of the zone? Do they not chase a 3-1 pitch? And do they let then, and they're okay with, and they're a team player and they're letting the player, their teammate behind them come up and hit. Now, Fernando Tatis did this in a game. It was a 3-1 count, bases loaded, or it was 3-1 count. Maybe it was 3-1 count, runner at second and third or first and second. There's two runners on and Fernando Tatis took a 3-1 pitch, uh, breaking ball a little bit down and away. He didn't swing at it. He took it and the next batter up was Manny Machado and Manny Machado hit one out of the park, a grand slam. Now, whether he hits one out of the park or not has nothing to do with assessing a player's willingness to let the next guy in the lineup do the damage rather than trying to be the guy who gets the hit. He was okay taking a walk. So that tells you a lot. I think hitters that take walks or hitters that are okay with walks, that says a lot. Sometimes hitters get a little infatuated which is walking and not swinging the bat. What I'm talking about is having good discipline and knowing that that pitch is a little outside. I'm going to take it. I know it's a walk and I know a runner's not going to score because I didn't swing the bat. I'm taking a walk. Now the bases are loaded. So technically I haven't really yet added anything to the team except one base runner. But what you've done now is you've given the next hitter a chance to get a better pitch to swing at. You didn't chase the pitch. Now the next batter, and sure, Manny ended up getting a fastball up and put it out of the park. So watch hitters in 3-1 counts with runners in scoring position, bases loaded, runners at second and third, just with runners on base, runners in scoring position more specifically, because that'll really say, hey, is he disciplined? Because some of them get a little, let's just say they get a little selfish and they want that RBI. They want that credit. They want to swing the bat to show that and they are not playing it like a team player. So 3-1 counts, bases loaded, 3-1 counts, runners in scoring position, 3-1 counts. That's where you really can see where a hitter falls at on the team player spectrum. All right. Now we talked about systems. I know systems are not talked about very much in baseball and in sports. They just really aren't. But youth coaches, you can absolutely, all coaches should absolutely use systems more. And this is something that is surprising that the baseball world, the coaching community has or is so far behind when it comes from just copying and stealing and borrowing from the business community and these businesses that run just elite systems. There is such a competitive advantage for teams that put in systems. Now, the better the system, the more optimized the system, the more accurate that system is in in terms of getting teams and players better and the team culture better, obviously that's going to be huge. That's a big deal. But having systems to me is a no, is a non-negotiable when it comes to putting in a coaching plan for youth coaches all the way through 
professional game. Absolutely should have a system. Now, most coaches, especially the high school and college level, have some systems or have parts of systems. And some have some tremendous systems. But I'm telling you, this is a huge competitive advantage. And here's why. Systems, and this is a little counterintuitive, systems give coaches more time to connect and build quality relationships with players. So having systems in place, having system a system in place and how everything is run in place and defined and rep gives coaches more time to connect and build quality relationships. So they have to do less managing, less guiding, and less overseeing and watching. And it gives them more time to connect. If, if the practice and the routine, the training routine, and the pregame routine, and the postgame routine, and the post-practice routine, everything is systemized, then the coach doesn't have to sit there and hold everybody's hand. And so thus, they're going to get more time to connect and build quality relationships with players because they're not having to micromanage the whole entire practice. The players know that's defined. And there's obviously, there's going to be suggestions and tips along the way. But it definitely, I've done this. I've done this with multiple teams, multiple years, and it absolutely works. It allows you to connect, build better relationships with players because you're not having to like walk them through every single step of the drill and every single thing. You're letting them, they're on autopilot through the routine throwing program, through the warm-up routine, through the fitness routine, through whatever it is, through the drills, through the drill setup, through the transitions, to the post game, to the cleanup, to the post practice, to organizing the dugout. You're not having to micromanage them. You're not having to baby step. You know, you micromanage them early to implement the system. And then it's autopilot. They're autonomous. Players, the autonomy that comes from systems is another thing that's counterintuitive. Some coaches go, I don't want to put in a system because I want the players, I don't want them to think they're robots. But in fact, players love it when you're not barking out orders all practice. Players absolutely love it when you're not sitting there barking out everything to do. They like to have a system that they can take and grab hold of and they know how it works and then they can work together. You can have a leader, an older player, lead the younger players, teach them how to do it. And they love that. They love not getting barked at. They love not getting barked at even when it's just order after order, this, that, the next step, the next step, we're going to do this, do that, do this. When they know what they can do and you don't have to say anything, you can just yell out whatever drill it is or hey, throwing routine or hey, hey, practice, let's go. Or they know it starts at this time. I mean, you could get really systematized with it. Practice starts. If you got a clock on your field, I coached at fields and played at fields that had clocks. Hey, when the clock hits three o'clock or two o'clock, we're going. I don't want to say anything. And then you just have a look, you have a consequence, whether it's bear crawls or playing time, things like that for players. And they won't. You might get a little pushback early or a little hesitancy early. Players aren't really picking up on it quick. But systems give you more time to one, not only connect and build better relationships because you're going to get time to associate and talk with these players. You're not having to run the entire practice every step of the way. It's also going to allow you to help improve like swing technique, pitching technique, fielding technique, base running technique. It's going to allow you to spend time coaching some of these techniques on an individual level. So systematizing a practice, a training routine, almost your entire program allows coaches to better get down in the trenches and work on swing technique, pitching technique, fielding technique, base running technique. Because as you're working with a particular player, for example, the practice runs, it just runs on autopilot. It's already running its course. You've set the system in place. So you don't have to keep watching the rest of the practice and then get back into coaching that player or having the discussion with a player. Maybe they're having a tough time. These things happen with all of our, everybody in life. So you're trying to have a quality building, relationship building conversation with a player, but you got to keep stopping because the drill's not going right or it's out of order or the players don't know what they're doing or the steps aren't done right or it's not set up right. All that should be systematized early. You can do this by repping it early, but give players credit. They can do this. I put in some pretty complex systems with players from dynamic warmups to throwing programs to fitness routines and the players know and they love it and they can do it and they work as a team. So they may not know the next step in the dynamic 
warm-up, they may not know step eight out of 12 or whatever, however many you have. But I'll tell you what, some of the players might not remember it, but one of the players will remember it almost always. And they'll work together and they'll get together and they'll get that system going. Then it just becomes autopilot within a couple weeks or a month. And so it allows you to work on technique more. It allows you to build the culture and relate to the players better. It's also much easier to assess and measure the variables. How do you assess your program if it's hodgepodge, it's this, that, you're trying all these different things. If you have a system in order, if you have a system in place, it's much easier to tinker with because you can just move pieces around much easier because they're organized and systematized. But it also allows you to cut out the variables because all the variables are accounted for. They're all written out. I recommend you write everything out, every step, every routine out, present it to the players. And a tip I heard in a book that actually wasn't anything to do with sports, but putting in systems, one of the best things you can do, especially if you're going to have players, you're a travel ball organization or you're a youth coach that's going to be coaching the next year. High school coaches, definitely pro coaches, college coaches absolutely should be doing this. Have somebody come out or who, or yourself or have somebody come out and videotape how everything is done. And so you videotape your system and now you don't maybe publish it out there on YouTube. Some of you want to share, you want to be open source. Some of you want to share, you want to be open source. Some of you want to keep it. I get it. The proprietary and all things like that. So you keep a little file of how everything's done. You're not giving away your signs. You're not giving away all your secrets. You're literally just videotaping your systems, your routines, your policy, your procedures, things like that. And so then when new players come in new to the system, they can watch those videos. And while they're not going to necessarily learn everything and be on point with everything in the system, just by watching a video once or twice, it definitely gives them a visual of what it should look like. This is what our throwing program looks like. So if you're a college coach and you got players coming in, the first time they see your throwing program shouldn't be on a visit. I should say the only time they see it shouldn't just be on a visit or the first practice when they show up. This is something that you would do maybe like an orientation within a couple weeks before. You could even do little quizzes on it, things like that. It's very easy to do. I've seen a really fantastic high school coach that I had. Coach Meek was my football coach in high school, but the other coach, I had quite a few great coaches. We were very fortunate in high school on my football team, but Bill Pendleton, he would give quizzes, little quizzes on stuff like this and it just the kind of assessments and things like to see where that you was checking for understanding. So you can do that, but put those systems in. I know I've touched on this before just recently and I wanted to hit it again, but put those systems in because it's going to let you build relationships with players more. It's going to let you connect with players more because you're not having to run the darn practice step by step. You shouldn't be an instruction manual. This, you should have it in place, put it in early, take your lumps a little early, go a little slower early to get it in, implement it, and then let it run like clockwork after that. And that's going to allow you also more time to work on individual players' techniques because each player is going to need to get coached a little different when it comes to their weaknesses and strengths. All right. It's also going to make it easier to measure if your system's not doing well or, or where it's not, or it's easier to tinker with your system and adjust and move around things, especially if you type it out, you keep it on a file, you keep it on iCloud or on a Dropbox, or you keep it on your computer, you keep it on your phone. You can easily tinker and move things around really easy, cut and paste, and just, and then you find what works better. You can t- take things out and you can swap things out in your system and things like that. A really great one is setting up drills and running through drills. Have fewer drills, just have really awesome drills, a few, one or two f- awesome drills that cover that one topic, that one action, that one event in the game, and then just get really good at running that drill, setting it up, moving fast, things like that. So systematize drills, warm-up routines, throwing program, throwing routines, your cleanup routines, your transitions. There's a lot of things you can systematize. Now, a coach, a discussion after a practice, hopefully you're not getting long-winded, but that's not something that should be autopilot. Those are going to be varying depending on how well or what you need to work on as a team. So I know I went back on the systems. We talked about it before, but this is something that is an absolute competitive advantage, game changer. Systems should automatically be in place. Every great business has systems. Every great team should have systems, but in the sports world, you don't see systems as much as I think there should be. In fact, 
the majority of teams, especially when you get into high school and youth, they don't have everything systematized. They have pieces systematized. I'd have everything systematized. I'd have it written down, scripted on video, and it's absolutely malleable and pliable through time, and it can definitely vary, and you can adjust. Absolutely. That's the best part about it. Get it on paper. Get your system on paper, all the steps. Get it on video once the players are doing it, and then adjust it. You can always redo the video if you make an adjustment, and you're going to make adjustments because you're improving, but get those systems in place. All right. Now, part two of the my tip, my strategies that I want to share with you in this episode, and then part three, we're going to get into the building elite drills step four out of eight. That'll be the last part here. I'm going to move through this next part here quickly. Stay with me. This one is good. Every time that you start to share a coaching message, a coaching pointer with your players, with your team, start by clearly stating the goal. What's the end result that you want to see? What's the result that you want to see that you want the players to achieve? So state the goal clearly. For example, here's a simple example. It's just a cute example. All right. Would hold true for all. You could just use this and extrapolate it and use it in any situation before implementing, say, cuts and relays. All right. Cutoffs and relays. Before implementing the cutoff and relay protocols, say something like this. Players, a team, we want to get the ball to the correct base as fast as possible. We want to get the ball to the correct base as fast as possible. The correct, and you could, you know, even have a follow-up sentence. Again, we're trying to keep it concise. The follow-up sentence may be something like, the correct base is either the base the lead runner is going to, so long as we have a good chance to get that lead runner out, or the base that the immediate trailing runner is trying to get to. So the priority, so you simply said, we want to get the ball to the correct base as fast as possible, and then you define what the correct base is. The correct base is getting the ball to the base that the lead runner is going to, if you have a good chance to get that out. If you don't, then you kind of work backwards from there with the runners behind. The trailing runner or the next trailing runner, if there's three runners running the bases. So you make it real clear before you even start into, hey, we want this, we want to turn our shoulders, we want to move our feet, we want to have this distance, we want to have a double cut, this. Before you get into any of this, right at the beginning, you say our goal. And so really what it it encapsulates and it shows the players can visualize that kind of this concise goal. We're trying to get the ball in as fast as we can to the right base. And so I know that may seem already like, hey, we know that coach, or that may seem like, why would I tell my players that they should know that? I'm telling you, it just helps to define it. You don't want to get super long-winded with this, but you want to establish that this is the result we want to achieve. And then you get into the steps and the why. I think selling the why is important, but also selling the result, giving them the result that you want to see. This is the result. This is the overarching goal of this. We want to get the baseball to the correct base. We want to get the baseball to the correct base as fast as possible. So you get a ball hit in the gap. Your outfielders, we want to get the ball. Middle infielders, your relay guys, your corner guys, relays, we want to get the ball to the correct base as fast as possible. So with that said, then you would even maybe define, or I wouldn't say maybe, I would define the correct base is the base that the lead runner is going to, as long as we have a good chance to get that lead runner. And if we don't have a good chance to get that lead runner, work back to the next runner. If there's trailing runners, work back to the next best option to get an out with those trailing runners. Also, you could say, while aiming to get the lead runner out, we want to limit the trailing runners from moving up. We want to keep and limit the trailing runners from moving up. So right there, just three, four sets that says you encapsulate your entire philosophy with getting the ball in, cuts and relays, and then you go out and work them. All right. We'll cover that some more as we get into some more episodes talking about how to state goals. And I'll give you more examples of how to state the goal, the result that you want. So write it down. You may tinker it, type it out, remove extra words. Maybe I got a little long-winded right there. Maybe you can shorten that down from, that's probably what, about 60 words. Maybe you can shorten that down to 40 or 30 words and then say it very concisely. This is our goal. This is the result we want to achieve. And then players when they see that can then work. It's like a really good boss isn't going to micromanage and and work through and 
and take the time or, or necessarily should have to take the time to talk to his employees or his coworkers about all the steps that they should do to get to the result. He should say, this is the result I want. These are some of the parameters. Let's go. Or maybe there are no parameters. Now, baseball has parameters because it has rules and physics, but you would say something like, you know, a good boss, right, is going to say, this is what I need. I need this done. Then in your expectations, it's done as efficiently and as effectively. And at the end of the day, the results are going to speak for themselves. All right. Last part, drill mastery, building, creating, designing elite drills. This is huge. I mean, this is just, if you don't have this, if you can't design good drills, if you can't design a good practice, you're not going to have a great team. You may have fun. You can design maybe a, a good team culture, but you're you're not going to be winning very many games. You're going to struggle. You got to design good drills. And believe it or not, there are steps, exact steps to do this. There are exact defined steps to do this. There's no mystery to designing good drills. There are exact way to do it in terms of what the ingredients are. There's There are exact ingredients that are necessary to create elite drills. You can create good drills without all the ingredients. You can create okay drills without all the ingredients. But the more ingredients you get in there, the more elite it's going to be. And the less or the fewer of the ingredients that you get, a fewer of the eight ingredients that you get into, then you're just starting to really screw around with the uh, the quality and the integrity of the drill. And that's just going to show up in your game for the most part. Now you get lucky here and there, maybe win a game or two. You got lucky. But over time, you got poor drills. You got poor training environment design. You're not going to do very well in the games. And so we'll get into that here. Part four, step four of the Elite Drill Series. Real quick before we get into this, if you want this PDF, this eight page, actually, I believe it's a 10 page PDF. If you want it, email me, coachbo at 8020baseball.com. Coach Bo, Coach Bo, B-O as in Coach Bo, like Bo Jackson, at 8020baseball.com. The number is 8020baseball.com. Reach out to me, email me, and we'll see if we can't get you a copy of this one of a kind drill guide. Now, also, some of you might be asking, well, Coach, why can't you just give us the drills? Hey, nothing beats being able to design your own drills because you know what your team needs. You know what your team needs to get better at. You know your environment. You know your training facility. You know your field. You know the lack of space you have or the abundance of space you have. You know how many players you have out there at practice, and that may vary. Things are going to shift. Things are going to change. If you know how to build and design an elite drill, you can do it anywhere, anytime, for any sport, for anything. And so I think it's important that we don't just have a basket or a bag of tricks, but that we understand how to design those tricks, how to design those drills. All right, so you can give the fish or you can teach them to fish. I'm trying to teach you to fish with this because at the end of the day, that's what's most important. So we went over part one of the drill design, the elite drill design. One was relevancy. Does the training drill improve us the most essential skills? How often does it happen in the game, basically? Is it relevant to the game? Not really is it relevant because anything you really practice when it comes to baseball, for the most part, or any sport or any endeavor is going to be somewhat related to the game environment or the environment that you're getting ready for or training for. But how much of it does it impact? That's huge with relevancy. Part two, we talked about time allotment. How much time to allow for each of your drills? How much time should you allot for each skill to be designed? We talked about, you know, their top six should easily be hitting. You can say bunting, but I'm more of a hitting and maybe a drag bunting, but mostly all hitting. Pitching slash your throwing routine, throwing practice, catching, your catching defense, blocking, defensive throwing, defensive ground balls, fielding ground balls, and then base running. Catching fly balls, I would put down even further, but you could get a pickoffs, relays, bunt defenses, first and third offense defenses wouldn't even make my top six, but they're definitely important. They're definitely something that's going to pop up, but you got to prioritize your time allotment. And then part three, the designing elite drills was the authentic how accurately does a drill replicate game action? This one to me is the easiest one to, to get changed because you've all seen a game. You've all seen the game played at your level, at every level or any level that you've seen, how it looks, the speed of it, how it plays out. Replicate your drills to make sure that they replicate game action as much as possible.
possible. There's a little bit of nuance to that because of the reps and the you're trying to get more volume with the drill. But if you weren't trying to get more volume with the drill, you would just play games all day. You would just scrimmage. So either you scrimmage or you do drills. The reason you do drills is because it's going to get you a much higher volume of repetitions, right? Think about that. If you weren't concerned with getting more volume, more repetitions, you would just scrimmage all the time or intra squad, which is my favorite scrimmage or a scrimmage against another team. You would just scrimmage every time. Why would you ever do anything but that? The reason you do drills and the reason you do training drills is because you want to increase the volume of reps. Now the trade-off is trying to make sure that it's authentic to the game action. So when you start up in the reps, what suffers sometimes because of the design of the drill is that it doesn't replicate game action. You can go back and listen to my breakdown of all three of these. Email me and I'll, I got the PDF. It's quite an elaborate PDF with other examples. It's got a lot of good information. Email me at Coach Bo. Like I said, Coach Bo at 8020baseball.com. Now, section four, part four, step four of designing an elite drill titled difficulty. Now, before I get into this, I got a 40-40-20 rule, or should I say 20-40-40 rule, 20-40-40 ratio when it comes to difficulty for drills. 20% of the reps at the beginning of the drill, in my opinion, should be slightly easier, slightly slower than game speed. Then the next 40, or you have a combination of the next 80, 40, and kind of a split back and forth of the drill being as fast or as difficult as the games that you're going to be playing for that level, your upcoming games. Ideally, maybe even you would say, okay, I'm going to make the drill as difficult as the average playoff game or maybe a championship game because you know the speed of a championship game is going to be better. It's going to be crisper than when you see two last place teams play. So not all drills difficulty-wise, if you're practicing to be average or an average difficulty level for your level, then you're you're most likely going to be an average team when it comes to those skills and handling those actions in those environments when it comes to the game. So the last 40, so 20, to break it down more simply, 20% of the drill, I believe, should be slightly easier than the game. This is confidence. This is movement, kind of working through it. And then the next 40% is equal. The difficulty is equal to a game situation at your level, or maybe slightly, maybe a, a playoff game at your level. And then the last 40% of the 20, 40, 40 ratio is to have the drill, those reps become more difficult than your level, more challenging than the typical game, more challenging than even a playoff game, more challenging than even that championship game is going to be. So you up the challenge level. I'm telling you this ratio has worked really good over the years. Try it out. Now, it takes some focus during the drill. It's easier to do with certain drills. Ground ball drills is definitely the easiest. Uh, Things like that. Some drills you can't always use a 20-40-40 ratio. If in doubt, just go right to the game. The If in doubt, use the championship game or the playoff level caliber competition and the game environment for the playoffs at your level and use that as your gauge. Use that as your barometer. Use that as kind of your measuring stick to see how difficult your drill is. All right, now I'm going to read off this guide I have written for everybody that if would like, reach out, email me. Here we go. Key question when it comes to difficulty and designing a difficult enough drill for your team and your players or for your individual player, for your kid. Is the drill more challenging than the game situation or as challenging as the game situation that it is supposed to replicate? And if not, what can be done to make the drill more difficult or as difficult as the typical game for your level? For example, can it be sped up? Can we add restrictions to increase the difficulty? Now, on the surface, most athletes will give the impression they want an easy practice drill. They would prefer easier drills, but experience has shown me otherwise. Experience has shown that athletes prefer to be challenged rather than coddled. If players are always super excited to engage in the practice drill, then that might be a red flag that there's a chance that those drills are not challenging enough to them. Again, it's a generalization, but keep an eye out for players that are super 
super excited for a drill, it may not be challenging enough. They get a little quiet, they get a little antsy. Maybe they know that drill is gonna challenge them. And when they're done with it, they're gonna feel a heck of a lot better. So when structured correctly, challenging drills can be enjoyable, especially with a positive team culture. Players that are challenged during practice in a positive environment will bring a more confident mindset to the game. Always remember this, sports are like a hill. And if you choose to let your team coast down the hill during practice, then they will have to push uphill during the games. If you can avoid the initial path of least resistance and create an uphill challenging, a difficult challenge during practice, then your team will roll down over the game opponents. They'll steamroll game opponents. Make the hill the practice. Then make the uphill part of the hill practice. So the game then becomes the other side, the down because if it's coasting, if you're just making these flat, easy, average practices, average drills, well, it's going to be an uphill battle come game time. The number one goal of practice is to make the game easier. The number one goal of practice, the number one goal of training is to make the game easier for your players, for yourself if you are a player listening to this as a coach or as a player. But as a coach, when you want to give in and make the practice easy. Now, I'm not talking about bringing out a slip inside once a year and letting your 12-year-old, your 9-year-old slip inside. What I'm talking about are your typical daily practice drills here, practice environment. As a coach, when you want to give in and make the practice easy, say no to that desire for instant gratification for that path of least resistance and say yes to creating a challenging practice. The all-time greats, Tom Brady summed this up perfectly in one short sentence about his ex-coach, Bill Belichick. He said, Bill tries to make practice harder than the game. Bill tries to make the practice harder than the game. The Patriots, like all great teams, seem to make the games at the highest level look easy. The games are easier for Tom and Bill Belichick because they chose to create practices that have where they can, they, Bill continues to choose and now Tom moving over to the Bucks. They're choosing to create a higher intensity, a higher level of difficulty for their training. If winning six NFL championships and creating one of the greatest sports dynasties of all time is not enough to sell the importance of creating challenging practices, then let's look at another solid example here to confirm its real value. The most elite teams conducting the best practices in the world are not found in the MLB. They're not found in the NFL or the Premier League or some rugby league. They're found in the Navy. While athletic coaches are trying to improve practice drills for a fun sport, a non-life and death sport like baseball, football, etc., we can certainly learn and should learn from the extraordinary SEAL teams. Jocko Willink, many of you are probably familiar with him, got a really well-known podcast. He's written out some awesome books. In fact, his book, where I got it right here, where's that book at? Right leadership strategies and tactics this is one of my top three coaching books of all time it went immediately to the top and it doesn't mention the word sports it doesn't mention the word baseball it doesn't mention any term that has to do with sports automatically right not automatically just immediately went to the top three coaching books not just that but parenting and leadership books that I've ever read that I think all the wisdom that he gets is from his experiences and also all the wisdom from the world that's come before him and before us so it was it's just unbelievable book Jocko Willink a man who spent 20 20 years serving the people of his country, of our country here in the United States through the SEAL teams said, Navy SEAL training is tougher than anything on the battlefield. Navy SEAL training is tougher than anything on the battlefield. And I've studied this. I've studied their techniques. Obviously, a lot of it they keep secret, right? It's just part of the special ops and any of that military stuff. But there's enough evidence out there. There's enough statements. There's enough that's been put out that you're like, okay, they're not making those training drills easy. And they're not just making them like they would if they're going to on deployment. 
deployment. They're not even making them equal to deployment. They are creating an environment that's almost guaranteed to be a losing situation. So when they get out to the battlefield and you listen to these amazing soldiers, these people that the CEO and just in general in the military, especially the special ops world, and you hear what they say about when they get to battle and it's like, oh, that was the easiest. That's the easiest thing we've done in months. That's the easiest thing we've done in a year. That was the real thing. That was the real deal. And you're saying it was easier because they make their training harder. The SEAL team spent an exhaustive amount of time and energy to ensure their training drills are more complicated, more difficult than anything they'll encounter on the front line. Brandon Webb, another decorated frogman, he said the number one key characteristic of excellence learned as a SEAL is to train harder than you expect to perform. Training builds confidence. Train harder. The number one key characteristic of excellence learned as a SEAL is to train harder than you expect to perform. Coaches, players, this is how you should live life. This is how you should design drills. Working with youth is obviously a little different than working with 23-year-old, 25-year-old frogman, Navy SEAL, soldier. You know, that's a little different. I get it, but that's why I like the 20-40-40 where you can kind of build in a little bit with that 20%, ease in a little bit, build some confidence, get the rhythm going before you really hammer them down with some difficulty. But I'm telling you, sports, it's not life and death. It's not life and death like what we're talking about here with the SEALs, but we can extract these valuable lessons from the SEALs trainings. Absolutely. Athletes do not rise to the level of the competition. They sink to the level of the training. That's a Brandon Webb quote. Like I said, he's a SEAL. Listen to that again. Athletes do not rise to the level of their competition. They don't just rise to the occasion. Athletes do not rise to an occasion. They do not rise to the level of competition. They sink to the level of their training. We sink to the level of our training. So you want to sink to the level of your training, you better train like a champion. Because if you don't train like a champ, then you're going to sink to that level and that level is not going to win you as many games. But also use this as the team culture kind of guideline too. The confidence comes from team culture that's got confident players. Confident people are going to typically be nicer and get along better and they're not their ego is going to be in check a lot better. So they build confidence through success. So the more success you're going to have, it's easier to team culture going with the more success. So everything is kind of intertwined here. All right, let me finish reading here. Unwavering confidence originates from actions, not words and thoughts. A person that thinks they're great or a person that is told they're great will not solidify that, will not solidify their confidence like the person that acts and does great things. An athlete generates the highest level of confidence by working through a challenging practice that consists of challenging drills. We all love to accomplish things. And the bigger the challenge, the tougher the grind, right? The stronger our confidence becomes upon completion or co- upon completing that. Brushing your teeth is not intimidating. Brush, well, unless you're like two. But brushing your teeth is not an intimidating task, nor is it super challenging. Now, it might be challenging to get off the bed when you're laying down at night and go, I got to go brush my grill, but it's really not an intimidating task. It's not a challenging task for anybody over the age of four. Thus, a person's self-worth in this example does not increase much from completing that task, like brushing your teeth. So tasks that are not challenging, there's not much of an increase at all or or at all of an increase in self-worth from completing that task. Now, buying a home, that's a bit more intimidating. The negotiation process, the escrow process, the home inspection, the finances, the job to support it, getting moving, organizing to move, the moving people, all the notary paperwork, all the DocuSign stuff. Well, that can surely make for a daunting list of tasks. However, when the challenge is complete, in that in that case, in that example of buying a home, you're relaxing on the couch in your new home, taking in your new digs. You feel pretty darn good about what you accomplished. You feel pretty darn good about getting that because that's a tough task. Now, there are many examples of tough tasks, tough things we do in life and the, and the feeling that we get from doing it and afterwards. And then there's so many day-to-day, simple, easy tasks that we should do, but they don't really build up the confidence. So I'm not saying you should make your teeth brushing, your, you know, more intimidating and more challenging and, and whatnot. 
on. All right, let's keep that as simple as we can and effective. It's just an example of like in life, when we complete great projects, if you finish a class in school, you're not as jazzed as when you get that degree or when you get a the graduation diploma and whatnot. It's the, the greater, the bigger the accomplishment, the better our confidence comes from. So building confidence through tough drills is really what I'm trying to say here. So in summary, create a positive practice environment that is more difficult than the game, but not so difficult that the players have little or no success, especially for youth coaches and youth players. Make sure the success doesn't come too easy. Help to desensitize the players to pressure by artificially embedding it into the practice routines. Add pressure, add difficulty to the drills, to the routines, to the program, and that's going to desensitize the players to the pressure. So what you're doing, and we think about desensitizing in other ways in life, but it's absolutely what happens when players and there's pressure in practice, then it just becomes status quo. It becomes the just standard. So when games come around, there's no raising the pressure. Their training has already raised it up. And I think the best quote that we got to keep in mind here as we finish this up is athletes and people do not rise to the level of the competition. They sink to the level of their training. So let's make sure when we sink, we're sinking to championship level training. All right, a couple tips to increase the drill difficulty here. Speed up the drill to put pressure on the team. Speed up the drill to put pressure on the team. Challenge, speed it up by having competitions. Okay, speed it up with the stopwatch. Speed up the drill to put pressure on the team. Speed it up by how you design it. And you can do this in a lot of different ways, but a fast drill, so long as it's safe. Nothing's ever 100% safe. If you never want to get hurt playing baseball, stay home on the couch. If you're going to go out to the field, there's a risk in anything. Now, with that said, we want to limit the injury risk. We want to limit and create a safe environment as we can, but speed up that drill, put pressure on the team. Next action step. Like I said a minute ago, turn as many drills into competitions as possible. Competitions are fun, but they raise the speed. They speed up the the drill. They speed up, the, they add to the pressure. They raise the pressure. Turn as many drills into competitions as possible. Split the team up and give one side a clear advantage. Maybe you split the team up into two teams or two groups or other groups, giving one team a clear advantage, thus forcing the other group of players to overcome more difficult odds, much more difficult odds than they're going to face in the game. All right, so making the stacking the deck for one team or one group on your team can definitely help. Randomly throw, this is a perfect example just with batting practice, randomly throw changeups and breaking balls during batting practice, not just fastballs. I mean, that's a surefire way to get your hitters better. You know, it's just such a simple one, right? I don't care if you throw a great changeup, throw something, grip it, watch a YouTube video, okay? Watch my changeup videos, email me, I'll send you a changeup video. We'll talk about the grips and that sort of thing. I have a, a video on all that. Breaking balls, you know, practice some breaking balls if you're the batting practice coach or get one of those pitching machines that randomizes it. Love those, you know, the hack attacks, those ones you can program. There's quite a few out there on the market now, but don't just pump fastballs. Throw randomized pitches up there. That's going to make it more like a game, more authentic. All right. If the hitters are going to face some a fast pitcher, say you're 14U or say you're like yeah, 14U and maybe you throw somebody, maybe you have batting practice, you move up the mound and mimic the pitch being 90 when you know the guy is going to be throwing 87, 88, a little bit faster, just a little bit faster. I wouldn't be pumping 100 mile an hour, kind of a 100 mile an hour feel to them. But as you get to pro and college ball, why if you're going to face a Friday night starter in college ball that's throwing 96, 97, why wouldn't you try to get the batting practice to mimic 100, 102? All right, now you got to adjust maybe distance, the machine and things like that to be creative, but throwing changes, throwing breaking balls. Guys, we can go on and on with examples on this. We can just go on and on. So to recap, speed up the drill to put pressure on the team. Turn as many drills into competitions as possible. Split up the groups of the drill, split up the team a little bit and give one side a, a clear advantage. So making it more difficult for the other side. Randomly throw in, for example, in hitting, just throw in, just simply throw in changes, breaking balls during batting practice, get closer to the plate with the, the L screen or turn up the velocity on the, on the pitching machine so it doesn't mimic. What, like if you're going to a batting cage, the old school batting cage just had like the 40 mile an hour cage, the 50 mile an hour cage, 60, 70, 80 mile an hour cage. Well, you should not be going in, in my opinion, at least half of those reps should be on the level, the velocity, the average 
velocity of the level above yours. All right, and then you can always incorporate the bear crawl if they make mistakes or the threat of the bear crawl. Although if you're gonna you know, say, we're gonna bear crawl if we make a mistake, if we don't get in under this time, or if we lose our focus, we're gonna bear crawl. You better do it and you better enforce it. So add bear crawls in. I love the bear crawls. We've talked about bear crawls. If you don't know what a bear crawl is, you need to go bear crawl your way on YouTube and check out what a bear crawl is. They're the best, I think, extrinsic motivator when it comes to practice time. Playing time is the best extrinsic motivator. It's the best leverage a player, a coach can have. But when it comes to in-practice stuff, something quick and acute that's not so dramatic with its consequence, just bear crawl. Bear crawl if they make a mistake, put that little extra pressure, maybe bring them up, the infield up, and you're saying, all right, we're, the play's at home right now. And you're randomly rapid fire, rapid fire, making the play at home. And that's the game. That's the winning run. Bottom seven, bottom nine. This is the run. You know, tie game. If they score this run, runner third scores, we lose. All right. And then you bring them up. You maybe you time. It's a little tough to time. Instead of having a runner, maybe you have a you time how fast like an average or a fast runner would get from that leadoff position to third to home. And then you can also add in the consequence of a bear crawl. All right. A lot of good stuff, I think, on this episode, you guys. Thank you so much. Go back and listen to this again if you need more. We're going to get into step five in the next episode of Designing Elite Drills. We're going to get into step five, talking about, well, I'll tell you in next episode. This one is probably my favorite. Uh, I love them all, but step part five, step five of designing the, the perfect drill, the, an elite drill. You're not going to want to miss that. That'll be episode 44. That'll come out next or the following Tuesday following this one. And the date on that is, that's going to be coming out here on September 22nd. This episode here is coming out on September 15th. September 22nd, we'll get into episode 44. You're not going to want to miss step five of designing the perfect drill. So it's an ongoing series, an eight-part series that we're getting into. Again, email me at coachbo at 8020baseball.com. Email me and I'll send you the PDF for this. And uh, love to hear how you're doing. Love to hear what you think about the show. Also, you guys, please follow me on Twitter, 80. I don't do, I don't just send out tweets just to send out tweets. I don't want to waste anybody's time. If I send something out, it's an, it's an actionable piece. It's going to be something that I feel strong about. I'm not, I'm not going to just throw out stuff to throw out stuff. 8020 underscore baseball at 8020 underscore baseball. That's me on Twitter, Coach Bo. And then uh, leave a review, please, or your thoughts. Email me your thoughts. Leave a review on your podcast and just, you know, share it with other coaches, your assistant coaches. That'd be great. So you get on the same page. Love having you guys here. Thank you so much for your time. That's it. We'll see you back here in episode 44. And until then, take care of yourself, especially your health. Take care of your family and go make the baseball community better. This has been Coach Bo. Take care now. This has been the 8020 Baseball Podcast. Take it to the field.